Mo, come here, buddy. You're going to be in the movies. And the person interviewing me wrote those words down, looked up from his piece of paper and said to me, so do you think we're going to like that? Yeah, I, I do what I do today, Kathy, because of a fourth grade field trip. No credit to me, just me fumbling along with what I knew at the time and the dog being very forgiving of my mistakes. It's a fact of the human condition. We're genetically hardwired, as one of my favorite spirit animals, Brene Brown, has said, to belong, to have a place. It's about having purpose, value. Some people spend their whole lives seeking what that is. Others, like Deanne Letourneau, get to figure it out early and then spend their lives on the journey of how that gets to look. She's the concert master for the Las Vegas Philharmonic. She's a teacher who guides kids in violin and viola. And she's a mom whose fierce passion and commitment to her kids has taken her on a powerful path. She is, without question, one of the most energetic people I know, bar none. Megawatt smile with effervescent energy to back it up. She doesn't greet you so much as envelop you. Her joy is infectious. So when she says that music is an extension of her life purpose, it makes perfect sense. She talks about music, making it, sharing it, as a way to truly connect with others, something that crosses borders, languages. That making music with and for people is like breaking bread for the soul. I'm Kathy Brooks, and this is Talk Unleashed. Dan, where I would love to start with you is where I start with all of my guests, which is I would love for you to share, and first thought that comes to your mind, the most impactful memory or experience that you've had in your life that included an animal or a pet? Oh, that's so easy. My first German Shepherd, Missy. That's, that's the easiest. Um, my mom was, uh, was a dog trainer. I mean, that's what she did. She, um, back in the day, we're talking in the sixties had, uh, was showing this, uh, wonderful German shepherd called Smokey of Solon Springs, beautiful, almost all black, gorgeous animal. And, and my mom was not just interested in, um, in, in the dog show part of it, you know, the, the glamour part of it. She was really interested in training utility dog. And in, and back in the early sixties, um, we're talking about 1962, 1963 up in superior Wisconsin and Duluth, Minnesota, where we were, um, they, they didn't have utility training. So my, my mom and my grandpa had to read about it and learn about it. And, um, and we also have another dog person in the family who, uh, this was my uncle Chuck Eisenman. He was actually my great uncle. So my grandpa's brother and Chuck Eisenman was not only a professional baseball player, and I'm trying to look for this because he was on the cover of time with his, uh, with his dogs. He has five dogs and he had a TV show in this 60s, kind of like Lassie, except in Canada, called um, The Littlest Hobo. And he made a movie back in the 70s with like Don Knotts for Disney called The Littlest Hobo. So it, so he's on there. He, he at the end of the day, was on The Mike Douglas Show. He was, you know, on, on uh, The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. So he was known everywhere. So he was a dog trainer and he'd written this book called um, Stop, Sit and Think. Because his belief was that dogs, you don't just dog train and do tricks. This is, these are thinking animals and, and you talk to them as a person and he would go and do demonstrations, which 
some people might say, oh, that's tricks. But I know that it wasn't because I watched him train these dogs. I mean, they're amazing. So how old were you? How old were you at the time? I was, well, I grew up with, with animals my whole life. So, uh, so my earliest memory is I, I was probably two feeding little dog kernels to Missy, you know, actually Crinky. Crinky was our first dog and he had hip dysplasia so bad that they had to put him down, which, cause back in the day we're, let's see, if I was two, I was born in 1967. So we're talking about 1969, not much great uh, work with animals at that point, I think with medicine. So, um, but the crinky, I would feed little, uh, I'd sit on by the bowl and, and I would have one, I wouldn't eat it, but, but I would have one. And then I would share it with, <laughs> with crinky. And um, so I was always around dogs. My, my grandpa had a, a, a shop dog who watched the shop and was a ferocious, you know, German shepherd, but the nicest dog and totally well-trained. This dog was never on a leash. And my, my grandpa or my mom could, could tell the dog at any point to do whatever. And it was, you know, like they would just stop in their tracks. So, <laughs> you know, so let me ask you, let me ask you this. So we've got Crinky, we've got Missy, and then we've got the dog, the dog that your mother uh, sounds like she was handler yes. for initially. Now, so she, that dog was not your family dog, but she was a, a handler right. for that. For well, that he dog. was actually, Smokey was also a family dog. So I remember as a kid, I think Smokey uh, passed away when I was maybe four. So I also remember this big, because mm. Missy and Crinky were both uh, from the litters of, of Smokey. My mom uh, was so proud because she was the first um, she was the first dog in our area, the entire area of uh, Wisconsin and Minnesota to uh, get a utility, uh, uh, pass the utility training. So when you think back to some of those childhood lessons, like I'm, I'm visualizing little Deanne sitting by the dog food bowl, <laughs> kind of, you know, sharing, you know, going back and forth, breaking bread, if you will, with Crinky. <laughs> Do you have, is there a particular lesson that you can recall from, you know, landing for you about what, what that meant, what that gesture of sharing the food meant, what, what that relationship meant to you at that time? Oh, can you recall? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's something that I still carry with me now. And, and, and I think why I have such a deep connection with animals, um, and, and, uh, is, um, that, whether you're human or not, it's like this spirit within the, that being is so powerful and, and the personalities are so different. And yet if you have kindness for any of them, they give it back to you. They, I don't, it doesn't matter. I've had, like I said, my, my grandfather's, you know, junk, I'm going to call him the junkyard dog. Um, I think his name was Thor, <laughs> perfectly <laughs> legit, you know, and and he would not like most people, but I could go up to him at any point. I could, I could, my mom could go up to him. Um, and so I've always had this sixth sense with animals and, it, and it's um, like, as I'm sitting there and feeding the dogs, it's just, you know, cause you think of this little two-year-old kid sitting with, uh, well, Crinky was, was when I was a little younger, but uh, Missy, where I'm sitting with Missy and feeding her is you know, she's such a big dog. I mean, Missy was a 95 pound, you know, big German shepherd, short hair. She was with me for 10 years, you know, and, and I looked at her no different than I looked at, at my friends who would come over and I'd share my, you know, sandwich with, or I'd share. So for me, it's just, um, living beings, um, living souls. I mean, I have that kind of belief about the trees as well. My husband at our cabin wants to cut trees. I'm like, no, Nope, that's my treat. You cannot cut it because I even have a fit when they were moving. They were moving our cabin a couple of years ago to to do some work, and they had to push the cabin forward, and they had to take out a big branch of this probably over a hundred year old uh, yellow birch tree. And I just had a fit because this was my tree. I was like, no. <laughs> so it sounds to me, you know, what I'm, what's landing for me with this is I think about this act of breaking bread, this act of communing over a shared resource, this act over being in presence with something. And I don't think it's too far a leap to look at the work that you do 
today. So we'll talk in a minute about kind of how you came to music and how music became literally <laughs> your life. But what occurs to me is the act of making and sharing music, the experience of being in a space, that moment when a piece of music plays on the radio and, you know, or plays on the speaker in a store and you look around and you all of a sudden you just see everybody in the store, their heads starting to sway or you see the smile come onto people's faces and they're like, yeah, that's the song. And, and they're being, and they're catapulted back to a moment of, of togetherness, um, that this idea of togetherness that you've had predates the music for you. Totally. A hundred percent. You know, for me, um, music is just an, another extension of, of what I believe my, my soul's purpose is here. It's a way to communicate on a bigger level because words won't fail you, you know, language barriers won't fail. Whether someone is young or old, it won't, it, it isn't like, oh, I'm talking generational. I, and I reminded every day as my kids say, mom, you don't know anything about the internet. <laughs> mom, you're old. I'm like, what? I'm not that old. So, so when I go into music, that does not come into it. Whether I'm, whether I'm sitting on stage with the Las Vegas Philharmonic, uh, whether I'm doing a recital, like I just played a recital last week for Sun City, um, up at, at, um, uh, their theater up there, the Starbright theater, um, whether, whether I'm in, uh, I'm in Germany and I'm performing concerts, I could sit, I, I remember sitting with a group of musicians at a summer festival that I was teaching at and the, and the, the um, faculty were going to do a, a, a recital. And all of us were, were from different countries, not speaking each other's language. So the second violinist was from Germany. The, um, the violist was from Russia. Uh, the cellist was from Taiwan and none of us speaking a common language. I knew a little German, they knew a little English. And so, but this rehearsal and performance was one of the most profound in my life because in the moment it really proved everything that I've always believed. But in that moment, there's four of us in a room getting together, not knowing each other, meeting for the first time and creating this amazing music. It was, it was absolutely uh, amazing. And, and that's, that was one of those moments that it just kind of validated everything that I believed or I thought, because that's a nice thought. Oh, you don't need language. And it, you know, and, and it's so cliche to say it's an international language. It's a, you know, it's a language of the soul, but really it is, it really is. And, and music for us, just like breaking bread is so, uh, necessary for everything. I, I, I mean, I'm a musician, so I'm going to say over, over the other arts, although all of the arts are important in so many things, but music is one of those things that, like you said, you're in the grocery store and something comes on and it touches everybody in that store. And, and honestly, I would think if, if a dancer was dancing down the aisle, some people would go, wow, that's great. Other people would ignore it and keep going. And, 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 and art, you know, of course, I guess most people wouldn't ignore that if you saw a dancer going down the aisles. I think people go, wow, this is great. But music, it has a way of permeating every, um, uh, prejudice, I believe, you know, because someone could, could look at art and say, oh, well, I don't like that. I don't like the color scheme or I don't like, oh, what, what good is this just splatters on? And so you get people with this really, um, intense reaction to it in music. You don't, you might get somebody who says, oh, I don't like that piece. Um, but if, if, if someone's there to kind of help them get through that piece about wh what is it, what emotion does it bring up? It's the same as eating food. Some people have a strong reaction. Oh, I don't, I do not like shellfish. And other people are like, oh my gosh, it's my favorite thing. <laughs> so, so yeah, music is, is, is like breaking bread, you know, to the soul, I think. Hmm. So let's fast forward a bit and shift from Little Deanne with doggies <laughs> to uh, Little Deanne with music. Now, was was the violin the very first instrument you picked up or did something precede the violin? Just the violin. The, the violin was, well, okay. 
officially, um, I played piano before I could do anything. And that that's my mom and my grandma who is now passed away would tell me stories. And, and the, the, my mom's favorite story was I was maybe a year and a half. My brother wasn't even born. So I might've just been over a year. My brother's a year and a half away from me and, and he wasn't there yet. And my mom was a pianist and she was a wonderful pianist. But again, back in 1966, you were either a teacher, you were a hairdresser, or you were a homemaker, or or a teacher. You could be a teacher. You could be a nurse. You know, um, and and you know, my mom kind of tells a story. She just kind of reminded me of the story talking about we were talking about you know women and women's rights and things and and how she's you know proud of what I'm doing and leading so many different things because she was told when when um, she overheard my grandpa telling someone when she was going to get married. Well, that's okay because women don't need to work anyway, as far as, you know, pursuing her musical dreams or even pursuing uh, more dog dog uh, showing. And, and, you know, she had so many passions. And so she remembers being very struck by that. And so the way I was brought up was very like empowering always. My mom was like, you can do it. You can do anything you want. And she just literally a few weeks ago told me that was because, you know, she was told that she couldn't do it. And, um, so my first instrument was my parents, especially my mom was like, everyone learns an instrument. Music has to be part of your life. You don't have to be, you don't have to be a musician. You don't have to be good at it, but music is, is a way to communicate. It's a way to express yourself. That is a must. Everyone until the age of 10, you had to take an instrument, you know, in our family. So I was like, okay. And my mom assumed to be piano because when I was two, I would sit at the piano and whatever my mom would play, I could mimic even at that age. And my mom said she called my grandma one day. And I, again, it was before two. And my uh, my mom said, mom, listen to this. And my mom held up the, the long cord phone and to the piano. And, and my grandma said, oh, isn't that nice? You're playing for Deanne. And she said, no, that's Deanne playing. <laughs> and my grandma said, what? And she said, what do I do with that? And my mom would play things like Moonlight Sonata, Tchaikovsky's Pathétique, you know, uh, uh, Mozart, you know, da, 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 all of those things. And that's what I was playing. My mom would compose little songs that we'd sing going through the woods. So singing and piano were my first introduction into, into music. Um, I grew up listening to any, anything from Herb Alpert to, um, Barbara Streisand to, um, I'm going to say, I forget the name of these singers, but like, you know, think of like, you know, I mean, all the great singers, of course, Frank Sinatra, um, you know, and then, and then go into like Chris Christopherson, some of those guys. And so that was kind of their mode. They weren't really into the rock kind of things, but this kind of like uh, really cool jazz, you know, Nancy Wilson, you know, I mean, just, you know, amazing, amazing voices. And, um, and when it came time to play an instrument, like to choose an instrument at school, I was, I was in third grade, I was eight years old. And I'm sitting in my classroom and this wonderful, fiery, red-haired lady comes into the, super high energy, comes into our third grade class and says, okay, it's time to pick orchestra or band, you know, orchestra band. So we had the band guy. I don't remember him at all. I don't know what, what he's talked about. But here comes, and her name was... Um, uh, her last name was, I always called her Mrs. Keller. To this day, I call her Mrs. Keller. So Priscilla Keller was her first name. So Priscilla Keller comes in. She was a cellist with the local Duluth Superior Symphony. And she came in de and demonstrated all the instruments. The very next day, we had a little quartet from the symphony. And I just was mesmerized. I was like, wow, I have to play the violin. It was really, I just was taken with what the violin could do. I also loved the cello, but really it was the violin. And I remember coming home with me. Now, what do you, what do you mean by that? By what the violin could do? Oh. What was it that you heard? Because I, I think I know what you mean by that in terms of, well, I'll, I'll just say that. I think I know what you mean by that, but what do you mean when you say by what the violin could ah, do? The violin, you know, on, on a, on a, uh, an emotional level, the violin just spoke to me. It just, everything it did, whether it was tremolo, trills, had a high voice, beautiful, sweet singing. So to me, it was like listening to a soprano sing. And I just thought this was amazing. And, and the cello had this beautiful, dark, deep voice, but I was not as attracted to that level of, of, voice, it was the really high voice. And so 
I, it could do everything. And, and I, in my mind, as I'm watching this demonstration, cause you know, I've done these to, you know, uh, for multiple different schools and, and kids. And as we demonstrate here are the violins and here's the viola and here's the cello and here's the bass. And, and, and I just remember that moment, the woman who was playing the first violin part was, uh, again, I was in third grade. So this is 1976. Jimmy Carter is the president. And this woman, and I do not remember her name, but I do know her because we grew up in the, in the area and I admired her for years, but she was a violinist in the first violin section of the Spirit Symphony. And she had this gorgeous black hair, 1976, cool outfit. I mean, you know, it's probably with a flare pants and she was probably wearing something really cool and psychedelic. And she was so gorgeous. In my mind, she was like, wow. And everything that she demonstrated, I'm sure she was doing, or I, at the time I didn't know what it was, but, um, arpeggios and go up and trill way high or maybe some harmonics. And I just thought, wow, I just, I just was mesmerized by the sound and the fact that they could captivate every single kid in this school, the name of the school is Bryant School, and I knew how rowdy these kids were. And I thought, no, when we'd have a presentation at school, we our class was in trouble all the time because the boys were all talking, they were throwing notes across the room, and when the quartet was there, no one moved. Everybody sat there and went, wow. Because they were doing, and again, this is back when Star Wars first came out, so they were doing some of the Star Wars themes. And, you know, I mean, it was wow, Disney themes that we all knew and sang it. And I just thought this is, to me, that was power that you could make an entire room just be quiet and listen to what you had to say. And I thought that was just because I was very shy. Whoa, 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 whoa. I was whoa. so shy. Forget it. I'm <laughs> slow, slow, slow your roll here for a sister because now we're going to dig in a little deeper here because um, so now I'm going to tell a tale. So I... Uh, moved to Las Vegas right around the same time Donato got here. Um, so I only know seeing the Philharmonic in in the, at the Smith Center in Reynolds Hall. And I would typically come. I had a friend in town who was a a a, a violinist. She was a concert violinist all through school, and she said to me, "Kathy, we have to go to the Philharmonic, and we have to sit up front. You have to see." this woman's bowing hand. You ha- We have to go. And so we literally, I was like, oh, okay. And my friend Lisa and I went and we sat um, orchestra center third row, which is not, as you know, not my favorite place to sit. It's a little too close. But we sat third row so that we could stare at you, essentially. And we sat just off center. So we literally, we were like off to your right, like at a right angle at like one o'clock for you. And we sat and we stared and we watched you. And about, I guess it would have been two years later, two or three years later, I was at the Wynn (laughs) and I was sitting outside the Encore showroom (laughs) waiting for somebody I was going out on a date with actually at the time. And I was sitting and waiting and you came walking up that long hallway. And I was like, oh my God, that's Dean Letourneau. Like that, that's, that's her. And I was like, okay, don't be nervous. Don't be nervous. Don't be nervous. Don't be nervous. Just in, just be very polite. Don't interrupt. She's had a long day. She just finished a performance. Just say hi. And you were walking by and I said, excuse me. And I think I said Deanne. I was like, oh, God, you just called her by her first name. You don't even know her. Know her. And you you whipped around immediately and you just kind of looked at me like, do, do I know you? And I said, hi. I said, we don't know each other, but I've been going to the Philharmonic and I just and you didn't miss a beat. You like you walked up to me as we were talking with this big grin on your face and you stuck your hand out for a handshake and you pulled me in for a hug like all in one move, all in one move, all in one move. And I'm like, oh my God, she's hugging me. This is amazing. But I'm a little freaked out. This is amazing. And, and we've been friends, we've been friends ever since. So for you to say to me, for you to say to me that you were a shy child, um, kind of blows my mind a little bit. 
because it is categorically, quantifiably like the last word, the last word that I would ever use to describe you as shy. You are, you are a ball of energy. You are, you are, you are joy. You are effervescence. You love meeting people. So did music do this to you? Yes. Music was my outlet. And, and that's what gave me a voice because um, growing up in my family, uh, my family is fantastic and hilarious and very loud. My whole family is loud. And my grandpa, like if you would be walking by or driving uh, or dri- riding in a boat in front and, and we would always have a party at our cabin, like every weekend. I mean, we had four cabins on one property, my parents, aunts, uncles, my, my grandparents. And if, if, if you waved and they waved back, you'd wave them in and we'd make more food for everybody. Come on in. Someone would come down. So my family was very loud. And, and, and the only way to get your point across was to be louder than everyone else. And I mean, it was, you know, in, in fact, at, at the house here, my husband loves, Scott loves to play board games. I cannot stand it. I hate it. I hate because it's so competitive and I don't like competition in that way. Like, you know how you start, you know, you start ripping on people and it's funny and, and I would be so sensitive. I'd be like, no, that's mean. You don't say that to somebody. And I didn't want to beat my brother or my beat my parents or I, it just, I just didn't like it, you know? And so I was very, I was very quiet except around people that I knew or my family. Um, and my family's very large, huge family, but I was so shy outside of my family that I did not have, I never raised my hand in school. I never wanted to be called on. I did not want to be seen. I was not, I was not a popular kid. I was literally the quintessential geeky eighties kid. You know I mean? Like seventies and eighties, totally like, yeah, yeah. I mean like the kids now look at my pictures, mom, I've got my glasses. My hair was in a perm. Uh, Yeah. I mean the perm hair, I wasn't even cool enough to get the big comb. Oh yeah. Big, big shoulder pad. I mean, forget it. Yeah, you, know, you know, comb in the in the pants, and then you'd stand up, and it would you'd comb and break because it got stuck in the chair. As you got, you know, I would try to be cool. I was not cool. I was smart, and and I was musical, but I was not cool. I was, you know, and and so even through college, when I went to college and I went away, it's like I you know, I had already been winning so many different competitions. And so when I go onto a campus somewhere, people knew who I was. It's like, Oh, you know, uh, Oh, that's Deanne at the time. Burger. My last name was burger. And it's like, Oh, here she is. And then it was through all of that music coming out and finally gaining that confidence that, uh, you know, sometimes I would feel bad for winning a competition or, you know, because I was quote unquote beating someone you're beating somebody. And I, I didn't like that. I was like, I didn't, you know, so music gave me that voice because it made everyone, including my family, if they came to see a concert, have to be quiet and I could be as soft as I wanted to and they would still hear it. And, and that's, I love that. I love that, uh, that ability to not have to compete, uh, over someone else talking, whether it's a solo, whether I'm in the orchestra and it's orchestra as a whole, and we're giving this message to the people in the audience, they're not just turning around on their phones and starting to, you know, text people. They're actually listening and they're engaged and, uh, kids, same thing. I love playing for kids. Kids are so much fun because they're, they'll ask the best questions. Who's the greatest violinist of all time. Sometimes I'll get that from adults, but kids really ask those kinds of questions and, and, so who is the so who is the greatest oh, violinist of all time? You know what? Oh, all of them. Or is that like asking who makes the best cheesesteak in Philadelphia where you get the best hummus? Yes. In Israel? Yes, exactly. It's kind of like pitting chefs against each other. It's like they each have their own a flavor that this is so great in this one and this is so great in this one and th- that you really can't pick a favorite. And I mean you know, in, in my opinion, and I, and I told my student this too, I said, in my opinion, um, I have favorites that I absolutely love. And I said, but to pick one over the other, I couldn't, I mean, starting with Yasha Heifetz, I think Heifetz was the great grandfather of all great musicians and violinists specifically, because he was the first to really put the package together. It was perfection. It was spectacular. He never missed a note. And we go back to those recordings in the fifties and the sixties, they were not overdubbed. This was a one take. There you go. And today, 
you could sit in there and go, yeah, I don't really like that G sharp. And here comes the little guy kind of like auto-tuned. It's like, and you can fix it. It's unbelievable what they could do. So again, even in the music world, recordings today, I think, what did we say, past 1986 or something, the recordings today are all fixed to be perfect. And so people go and listen and young players try to emulate that. And, and, and it's very discouraging. The same as a, as a, as a, a someone on the cover of a magazine, or, you know, it's like they do little things to fix certain things. And, and the reality is we have a wrinkle or we've got a mole or we have, a, and, and that's the character of each person. And I, and I, really work with young kids to say perfection is not the goal. There is no such thing. It's there's no such thing as perfect. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. Last night I went to hear Diane Schur at Myron's. <laughs> and it was it was brilliant. And she is a pistol still. And she was brilliant. <laughs> and she was sassy and irreverent. And I was listening. Ernie Watts was on saxophone. Love, love, love it. Love it. Ernie Watts was on yeah. saxophone, so it was really two legends in the room. Oh and there was one particular piece they were playing. I um, I can't recall which, but they were going, and each of the musicians was was doing a little bit of a solo. And it occurred to me, because I haven't heard proper live jazz in a long oh, time, right. you know, pre-pandemic. And even pre-pandemic, you know, I haven't really gone to hear much live jazz in, in this city. I did it all the time in San Francisco. Um, and it occurred to me how messy jazz is. Love it. <laughs> and it's, it is chaos and it is perfection yeah. and it is a harmony and discord often in the same moment. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I talked a bit, um, with Donato regarding the, uh, erudite expectations of classical music and the idea that it is somehow snooty or somehow um, elitist. Um, he pointed out the fact that maestro merely means teacher. Yes, correct. It doesn't mean like mass doesn't mean master of the world. It doesn't mean <laughs> anything like that. It literally it the literal translation is teacher. teacher. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, we have these expectations that are set. And as I'm, as I'm listening to you talk about kind of the evolution of music and the expectation of music. So you, as a, you are a leader, you are, so they call you concert master, not concert mistress. Correct. <laughs> Is that because concert mistress sounds a little bit mildly s ish yes. Is that why? 100% is like, I'm coming out in the big boots and the, you know, I'm like, Oh, like coming out with a whip, yes, concert mistress, whatever you say, concert mistress. Oh, yes. Because there's a whole new visual that I'm going to have now when I go <laughs> no. see the Philharmonic. Oh. But I die, but I die, but I digress. So you are concert master, yeah. uh, gender neutral term of, uh, you are the gender neutral concert master <laughs> of the Las Vegas Philharmonic, which means you sit first chair violin. So that's the typically the title that is given to the first chair violin. So you, it is your responsibility to come out to uh, lead the orchestra in the absence of a conductor, Correct. as well as um, in preparation right. for the conductor before the conductor takes the podium with the baton. Um, so as a leader, as a first chair, share a bit, if you would, about what kind of leader you believe you are? Oh, oh, that's such an interesting question. Um, I like to think of myself as as an organic leader, and and just meaning that in any given moment, I will respond in that moment with with what I feel is fair to my colleagues, fair to the to the audience, fair to the conductor, and and my job with with leading um, musically is to take into consideration from a musical point of view, how our sections in the strings, particularly how our sections will play something. So Donato will say, I want it to sound like this. And he might sing it and I get what he wants. And, and then I'm going to make bowings that mimic the way he was singing it. And then we go to rehearsal and we trial and error, like, Ooh, that didn't really work. We're in the wrong part of the bow for the next part. Or that's it. It's, it's a lot of, it's, it's a little bit like playing chess, 
it's constantly like you cannot make one move without thinking five moves ahead and without thinking even to the end and then having someone else like meaning in this case Donato say this is what I would like different if I'm playing in a quartet and it's the four of us talking together we all decide as a group um, but in an orchestra position I mean could you imagine 78 players sitting there and all having their ideas during a rehearsal saying I think it should be this. Well, this is the way I played it in college. Well, this is the way I, I learned it. Well, this is how I practiced it. Or, this is the way I played it with David Itkin when David Itkin was here. Oh, well, we played with Hal. This is what we have now. This is when Hal did it. So it's very interesting that the, the persona of the orchestra shifts with each conductor, but I'm the conduit for that, for the strings. And the strings are the biggest part of the orchestra. When you go to the symphony, the first thing you see is probably you know, 45 of us sitting on stage were the biggest part of the stage. And then you have like two or three flutes, two or three oboes. And then maybe depending on what we're playing, uh, four trombones, <laughs> I'm assuming we're playing Mahler for have four trombones, but you know, in a tuba, you know, so, so there are definitely playing Mahler. If there's, there's a, a tuba, tuba, we're playing Mahler or Bruckner, Bruckner can go in there. Bruck, Bruckner, Bruckner has tubas too. But you know, what kind of leader I am is I like to, I like to think that I'm fair. I like to think that, that I am not the kind of person that is black and white. Like this is what I believe. And, and I I'm always listening where we can go is absolutely limitless. I think that, that more people today, and this was kind of part of this leadership part is, is leading people back to the stage and getting them to realize that the arts, the, whether you're going to see the opera, you're going to see jazz at, at Myron's cabinet, you know, Myron's uh, uh, showroom over there. If you're going into Reynolds Hall and hearing the Philharmonic, going to see a Broadway show, it's so important for humans to get that soul feeding artistic, even if you've never been to a symphony or have never been to a Broadway show or you've never, never gone and seen... Go, uh, go to Monsoon's and watch the the cool jazz trio that, or the jazz group that's up there with Naomi singing. I mean, it's to die for, and it's while you're having dinner, talking with your friends, and it's this music surrounding you that just brings the festivities, and the, it brings the food to life, and the food brings the music to life, and and symphonic music does the same. It's like there is nothing in the world like it, symphonic music, because. You have 80 people on stage making acoustic sounds. There is no amplification. There is no microphone, except for if someone's talking, uh, not even singers. Whether you're coming to the very Vegas holiday show in December where we've got the choir, that's all acoustic. That is just human voice coming across and hitting you and surrounding every part of your being. So I want to ask you a little bit about some other work. So you have, you contribute not only, um, I know you do programs for kids in schools, you do a lot of outreach. The Philharmonic is great about that here in Las Vegas. Um, Education and youth are very important. You are a teacher, you have a studio, you teach viol and violin students. You also have, have really expanded um, in the era, in the area of neurolinguistic programming, and how do brains and how do people um, process information, and what is the role that music plays in that? Oh, with with NLP, um, NLP is a godsend, and and it has helped me not only transform myself as in, in that leadership role, because it, before I married my husband, Scott, and, and we were married in, I met him in 95, we were married in 96. And he was, he's the one who introduced me into this whole world. He was a great communicator and I was not, I was a great communicator in music with, with words. I wasn't, I mean, I really thought I would never get married and I would never have kids and I was traveling and I was touring and I was, I was a free spirit, but interpersonal relationships were always like an interesting thing for me because that meant getting deep and that meant getting really, I could bear my soul musically because no one really knew what I was. I could feel it, but no one knew what the feeling was. I could just play it. And, and that was my, that was my therapy. And, and my husband, was very good about asking questions and asking, well, how does this make you feel? And what does this mean? And, and we've now with this past August celebrated 25 years together. And I feel like yeah, 25 years and where I've 
I've really helped lots of young people is getting through um, performance anxiety, um, getting up on stage in front of people playing, especially a solo, much less getting on stage playing with the symphony, but playing a solo um, is much uh, the way most people who've never done something like that would be like having to give a speech in front of your class and you're just mortified. Like you do not want to speak in front of your class and want to make sure you don't make a mistake. And and, and so helping people visualize and, and giving them verbal kind of commands while they're doing that as they're in a place where they're confident um, is key. You know, um, especially young people, when, when young people come in for lessons, and, and I've been teaching here now for 26 years, and a lot of my students are now in their late 30s and have wonderful jobs. Some of them not in music. Some are, are lawyers. Some are doctors. Um one in particular um, is a wonderful young person. He was, his father was a pastor of the Korean church here, at one of the Korean churches here, and he spoke no English, yet they were going to take violin lessons. He was very talented. And once again, he spoke no English and I spoke no Korean and he would take lessons and he was so shy. He was, he was deathly shy. And as months would go on, he would get better. He would get better and better and better. And pretty soon he became, by the time he graduated, he was at the Las Vegas Academy of the Arts and one of the top violinists in the city and um, really talented, talented uh, guy. And he told me now he has kids of his own and he's running this huge company and he speaks in front of 20,000 people at a time. Uh, mostly he takes on the Asian market for this particular company. And, and I said, he said that it was because of, of my training not because of a violin, but just making sure you always had your voice being heard that made me not this shy person that I can now lead thousands of people. And the camera person put down his camera and he said, he goes, do you mind me asking, you know, off camera what his name is? And so, uh, um, or no, he didn't say what his name is. He says, are you by any chance talking about this? And he named my student. And, and I said, I am. I said, how do you know? And he said, I've heard him speak so many times on the platform and he always talks about his violin teacher and he goes, and to sit here and meet the violin teacher that he, he thanks publicly in front of thousands of people around the world that get your kids in things because it's not just violin that we're teaching. And NLP is the biggest thing that helps me get through to these kids that whether or not they want to be a violinist, for me, I'm my studio is not about training people who can win competitions and go out there and be the greatest violinist. I mean, yes, I have some of those and I've had them. I resonate more with a student who is in the back of the orchestra, who their parents can't afford lessons, but they're passionate about music, or they've got a bad home life and I want to help them. And, and that's where I'm, I'm drawn. I'm drawn. I've had several students that, you know, that, that I help out and, and help them get through. And, and a lot of them have gone into music because it's, it's changed their life and they're not high fits. They never want to be high fits. They, they just want to teach and they want to give back the way that, that I've given back or their orchestra teachers given back in the music. And, and I really, I really thank NLP for that. I, I believe every teacher should should have knowledge of NLP because it it's a way to bypass your own beliefs of something and be able to get into what's important for that person, even in how they learn something. It's it's so well, and that's that's actually what I was going to ask you. So um, I was going to ask you if you could be a bit more specific as to um, why NLP specifically has helped you in the realm of your own your own music, I'm assuming that your ability to engage with your own music has shifted, ergo your ability to then lead others. So can you can you be a bit more specific about in what way NLP has played into that? You start you just started mentioning it that it's because so there's some people who might not understand what neurolinguistic programming right. is, right. that it's this function of, you know, we all have neural pathways, we have thought processes and experiences that are typically based on experiences that were presented to us usually between the ages of like zero and eight, zero and 10 is like those formative years that whether it's your, your, the lifestyle, the socioeconomic status, um, threats real or perceived, right. trauma real or perceived, 
joy, support, all of the positive and negative things that happen, um, comments made by kindergarten teachers, comments made on the playground. It doesn't matter. It could be it could be seemingly innocuous at the time, but these things leave, you know, leave like imprints, like markers on our minds that then configure the way we see the world with the way we see ourselves and the way we program and that assessing that which was. Yes. And deconstructing those experiences, kind of picking them apart, dissecting them, pulling them apart, and then going through the process of experiential learning to rewire yes. those path, pathways. Yeah. So what what it essentially does for you, if I can be bold to just kind of plant some words yeah. in your mouth that you can chew on and spit out or, or give some new words of your own, <laughs> being that... When I stand as the form of transformation, when I stand as an example of what a transformed individual looks like, right, right, my way of being, if you yeah. will, the way I am in a situation, the way I engage or don't behave or don't, what I say or don't in a situation, right. that when I am that, that I can become an example for others to say, oh, well, so you're not going to buy into my bullshit, huh? <laughs> You're not going to, you're not going to, you're not going to enroll in the bullshit story that I'm telling myself about this. You're standing there and telling me that it's all cool. So talk to me, talk to me a little bit about how that works for you as, um, as a mother, mm-hmm. as a teacher, um, and, and as a leader in your organization, um, a mother with three beautiful children, yes. you know, who you get to stand for. Yes in all of their essence of yes. being <laughs> and 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 so share if you if you would share share about that you know um i think that that nlp has helped me uh break down so many barriers so again like you're saying in those formidable years you know from zero especially zero to ten teachers, family members, what they've said, brother, sister. Well, I don't have any sisters, but brothers, cousins, my, my oldest or our oldest, I should say, uh, thanked me the, uh, like a few weeks ago for not conforming to gender roles in, in their life. And, and, uh, so, so my son Lee is transgender and because I've always told the kids that it's so important to listen to your inner self. Your inner self always tells you what's right. It, it always tells you what's right. And and it was interesting as he was letting me know in July that he was transgender and he was going to make this transition. Um, you know, we were talking and I said, how did I miss that as a mom? How did I miss that? Because we are trained in NLP and we are always talking with the kids. We're very open. You know, um, Lee, um, came out when he was 13, you know, and, and, you know, for me, it's just kind of natural that, that whoever people are, I love them. I, it doesn't matter, you know, and, and I'm learning so much every day through Lee because I thought, how, how did I miss this? You know, now my husband, Scott is a little more on, on conservative side. And so he, this was a learning curve for him big time, you know, in his, here's my family, here are my three kids. This is what I'm thinking they're going to do. And all three of them are extremely talented in what they do in an art form, you know, uh, uh, Lee is an incredible artist and was an incredible singer and was an incredible actor and a dancer at one point and all these things. And we're also finding out that he's autistic, which we did not know. And, and he's discovering that and, and putting all this together and we're working through all of that together. What does that mean? And again, how I asked his, his doctor, I said, how, as a mom, how could I miss this? Cause I'm, I'm always like, who are these young people that, that I'm here to help guide? And, and NLP's really helped, but I'll tell you where NLP really helped was through this process with Lee first coming out at 13. That was one, that was one issue that, that he had to go, wow. Okay. And he was excellent with this. He was like, okay, through NLP and reframing what that means, because he grew up in the Midwest, like I did that, that there, no, it's like that was never talked about other than some slur that someone would throw out once in a while, just as kids being, you know, throwing out slurs and, and growing up in, in the AIDS years in the eighties. And, and you're talking about my husband, right. And, 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 you know, so he, 
like there was no one he knew who who was gay like no one like he was like i i don't know anybody i you know and i said you probably know many more people than you think they're just not telling you they're you know because people don't talk about it and my family is uh, my immediate family is very open everybody's open they're like okay all right you know now now transgender that was a new a new level for them midwesterners and my my parents are in their mid 70s and 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 it, they they're totally fine they're like whoever they want to be is who we love because that's who we love we we love them and and then i was thinking i was so thankful because i realized listening to my mom and i were talking about this a few months ago you know when i was back up north and and i realized that's where i learned it i learned it from my mom i learned that humans and people animals everyone deserves the respect and the love that you can give them at all times unless they do something that shows that they don't deserve that love and respect and then you just walk away from them you're like you know i i i'm just going to respectfully walk walk away um, because I have other family members that are not as open and, and, and Lee's very aware that, that there will be, I said, I would love to tell you that the world is awesome and they're open and, and everybody's great and loving. And I said, and I'm, and I have a belief that most people are, I really do. I think sometimes some people call me Pollyanna. Oh, you just haven't been around bad people. And I said, no, I've been around several bad people. And I said, and I just look at them and go they they don't have a place in my life. And I think it's because of NLP, I'm able to compartmentalize and put them in a space. You know, I don't, I don't talk with them. I don't wish them ill. I just don't need them in my life. And, and, and our, our it's a separate, it's pasture. A separate pasture and, and NLP really helped I think in some ways that from a big spiritual level that I was given the gift of learning NLP and really bringing it into myself. So I'd work through some of those, um, those issues that I had growing up, both as a performer, as a mom, not feeling adequate. I don't know many moms that feel adequate as a mom. Sometimes you know, you're thinking they don't talk to me. Did I fail them? No, that's just part of being a teenager, <laughs> you know? And, and now we have the other two left in the house. We have Rose and Faith, and they're both, um, they're completely, I mean, they love it. It's like my brother. That's my brother, Lee, and they're great. And I think that, you know, their paths are totally different. And, and parenting each one of these individuals has been one of the most interesting and um Le most incredible learning experiences of my life and and adds so much even into the music because of each one of those little humans that came into our lives and they each bring their own gifts. <laughs>